Unless people have been living under a rock, they have definitely heard about all the furor over ivermectin and people obtaining it and the veterinary product and possible ODs on this stuff. And so we need to know what the deal is. First off, just before we get into it, has anyone actually died of this stuff? So really interesting, Stuart, just recently in New Mexico, in the popular press, so we don't have access to these medical records, but two deaths have been reported from using a veterinary injectable product of ivermectin. So we thought it was a good time to reach out because this stuff's being used a lot, not only the veterinary products, but of course, there's lots of docs who are prescribing the regular human dosages too. Now, the human versus the veterinary thing, you know, to be honest, I'm not that panicked about someone taking a course of ivermectin for a regular dose that we would use for scabies, for example, which we used to use all the time, to be fair, you know, in our practice. And so I'm a little more concerned about this veterinary stuff. I take it that the dose can be much larger inadvertently. That's the issue, is it not, or no? Yeah, so you're absolutely right, because ivermectin on a whole has a very wide safety profile. And the good thing is it's very safe. But as you mentioned, I mean, people are using horse paste, man. I mean, the size of a horse. So horse paste is 1.87% ivermectin. And just to break that down to you, that's about 19 milligrams per gram. That's around per gram the dose that a human would take. We'll get into the sort of normal doses of humans. But this horse paste, it's hard to dose, right? Like you could easily go tenfold in it. And people are making sandwiches. They're putting it rectally. I think that people are using higher dosages if they're worried about having COVID or they do have COVID. But these deaths from New Mexico, they're actually using this. It was called Ivomec, and it's a veterinary injectable. And that one is 10 milligrams per mil. So it only is one mil, two mils, and you're already at the human regular dose. And look, these are veterinary products, so they should be, what it says on the label should be correct. But there could be fake stuff out there, right? We're hearing about all this fake Norco and Xanax as fentanyl. I think there's probably a lot of fake ivermectin out there that could have higher concentrations or none at all. Okay, so Sean, I'm really anxious to get into how this might present and what we might have to do about it, because that's sort of the nuts and bolts of this. But just before we do, I think it's important to remind ourselves how this stuff works in the first place. The mechanism, you know, when we use it as an antiparasitic, for example, that's different than in terms of the proposed mechanism for COVID, right? That's correct. So let's focus on the traditional mechanism of action. And that's where we think we see the toxicity from. So the way that it kills these parasites is in their peripheral nervous system and in their muscles, they have GABA-mediated chloride anion channels for us that are limited to our CNS. So what happens is their cells hyperpolarize, they get paralyzed, and they die. Fortunately, we have a blood-brain barrier that prevents ivermectin at normal dosages from getting in there. But if for some reason it does, then you can see the effects. And that's where it seems to be the toxicity that we're seeing. The COVID proposed mechanism is by inhibiting the virus from getting outside the cell to the inside of the cell by blocking something called important. And that's all you need to know. The reality is it probably doesn't do this. Or if it does, you probably need much higher than standard dosages for it to happen. Okay. And just for the record, when we're talking about the proposed dose, in COVID, the one that they've been using the studies, for example, we are talking about 0.2 milligrams per kilogram to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram once daily for five days, which really isn't that different. In fact, it's kind of bang overlapping with the range that we use it for as an antiparasitic. So this 
you know, proposed mechanism depends on, like you're saying, a dose that probably we're not using. Is that, is that fair to say? Exactly. And that's probably why with prescription dose, at the dosages that you mentioned, we're not seeing toxicity. I think where we're seeing the toxicity is someone who's either taken a handful of it or most commonly, I think, from these veterinary products, that it's just too hard to give yourself an accurate dose. And let's just say that you might not get a perfect history on some of these patients, right? They might not be completely forthcoming, especially with some of these more unusual routes of administration, right, and products. What should we be looking for clinically? What's the hallmark symptomatology of this toxidrome? Do you see people saying, hey, I feel a little dizzy, to having ataxia, to being a little drowsy, to stuporous, to all the way to obtunded and coma? And that makes sense when you think about if it crosses the blood-brain barrier, how can you cross the blood-brain barrier? Well, this happens if you take a lot of anything. But in states like sepsis or, let's say, bad COVID, you can have those tight junctions start loosening up. So that's one way that it can happen. So clinically, that's what's been reported. And most of the data, to be honest, is from animals. But it seems the animal data correlates with the limited stuff that we in humans, where either it was a child who got too much, or interestingly, when we talk about why they might get toxic, there's some reasons why that might happen. Now, I definitely want to hear about that. That's interesting, why some patients might actually get toxic at kind of normal doses. But just before we do get to that, can you explain to me why is it if these get into the CNS and potentiate the action of GABA at these chloride anion channels, why is it that they don't just act exactly like benzos and barbs? That's a great question because I was wondering that myself because seizures are not as common as the CNS depression. So there probably is a spectrum, but there probably is more going on because not only can you see seizures, although it seems to be relatively rare compared to the obtundation and coma, but they can also get hypotension, bradycardia, and hypersalivation, and medriasis has been reported. So maybe there's this other stuff going on. Hypersalivation, you'd expect to see meiosis if there's some cholinergic thing going on. There could be contaminants in it. But for the most part, I think you can think of this as probably like a bad benzo and anticipate you might see cardiovascular symptoms. And so, you know, like most things, there's probably more to what's going on than we realize. I think it's hitting more than the channel, probably. If you see those other effects, that wouldn't be explained just by hyperpolarization of the chloride ion channel activity. So if we do think we're seeing this, Sean, ivermectin toxicity, what do we do about it? So the treatment's just going to generally be supportive, right? If they need to be intubated for airway protection, of course, you'll do that. Follow their blood pressure. If they get hypotensive, just fluid resuscitate them. There'd be no role for activated charcoal or any other GI decontamination. Of course, keep a broad differential, but I bet you some people maybe already seen it or may see it, but it's just going to be supportive care. And why do you think it is, uh, by the way, that, you know, it is a relatively safe drug? And we even said before when the uh, pandemic was in its infancy and we were talking about which drugs are worth studying, it was the safety profile of this one that made it kind of, you know, and the proposed mechanism that made it kind of appealing in the first place, right? So why is it that we're seeing this in some people, like just to take a, a step back? Why, why might that be that we're seeing it? And is it some patients that are particularly prone to it? Yeah, so typical toxicology stuff, we like to pontificate and uh, extrapolate from data. But there are some reports in humans that show if you have the phenotype that you have a decreased P-glycoprotein pump, for whatever reason, you just lack the gene that does it you might be more susceptible. And this has been shown, and there's been reports, case reports from the developing world, where they use it more commonly. 
that that can happen. So that could be, there's a lot of medications like verapamil and other calcium channel blockers, digoxin, that are peak glycoprotein inhibitors. And then there's also cytochrome P453A4 inhibitors that would decrease the metabolism. So that means you'd get a higher dose, but might cause it to cross the blood-brain barrier. We really don't know, Stuart. I think the reality is it could be any of those, all of those, but probably people are just making a big sandwich of horse paste and taking too much. And that's probably where we're seeing toxicity in those few people that do, but maybe we're going to start seeing a whole lot more. Excellent. So we geeked out a little bit there, which is our want. But in summary, ivermectin is a relatively safe drug that is used worldwide, especially in the developing world, where a lot of the data comes from. It appears to be relatively unlikely to cause toxicity, except perhaps in certain patients that might be taking other medications. There's some unknowns there, but mostly from people taking these unauthorized forms and routes of administration. Clinically, these patients are ataxic, they're dizzy, and eventually they get progressively obtunded and comatose. Sean probably said it best when he said, these are kind of like a benzo overdose with cardiac side effects. And so you're going to watch for those. Treatment, supportive. So thanks, Sean. And there you have it. 